Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. We'll go down to verse 13. First John 5, 6 through 13. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony of God. This is the testimony that God has gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, Son of God, does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that your word is steadfast, your word is true. So like we just heard in that song, and as we just prayed, speak, O Lord. Fill us, renew our minds by your spirit through your word right now. Help us to love you in a greater way than what we did before. Help us be assured of what you have said for those who are your children. We trust you and we ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. The title for today's message is called The Testimony of God. The Testimony of God. And I would subtitle it The Spirit, the Water, and the Blood. And I know that subtitle probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but last week, this was just a review a little bit. Last week, we talked about the victory of God that comes through faith over the world. But this week, and again, we're, we're starting to wrap up 1 John. It's been, we've been in this since January. So it's pretty exciting. I think it's pretty exciting. We've, we've preached through an entire book of the Bible. We can say that at the end of this the next couple of weeks. So that's exciting. Uh, but as we think about today's message, I want to put a thought experiment in front of you. Probably one you've heard before. And John here, he's talking about a testimony, and then he's going to give the grounds for the testimony. But I think one of the, the barriers to that in our own culture is any time a Christian claims something absolute, and if you've done this, I'm, I'm sure talking to your neighbors or your friends or your family, you've heard this example before, but any time you say, Jesus is the only way, or Jesus is Lord, a common response to that is, you can't really know that. Here's, here's why you can't really know that. And then they go on to explain how religion is kind of like a man feeling, a blindfolded man, feeling an elephant. And each, each religion is just a little bit different. Like Islam, they have a hold of the trunk, so they're able to, like, they're blindfolded, so they have a hold of the trunk, and they think that religion's about this, and it's kind of tube-like. And Christians, we're the ones that are, that are we're blindfolded, and we have the ear of the elephant, if you would. And we think, so we think religion's kind of floppy. And then you have other people, and... But notice in that example, and I, I'm sure you've heard this before, and if you haven't, you should talk to more people because it's a very common illustration. But the person who always gives that illustration 
What they're claiming, though they're not claiming it, is that they are not blinded. They're the ones claiming. Everyone else, they're blind. They're just groping at this elephant, feeling the elephant. They just don't know. Religion's all just this kind of blob. There is no truth. But this is not at all what John says. This is 100% not what John says. The person who claims that all truth is relative is the only one in that example who's not blind. Because they're the one claiming absolute truth. And their absolute truth just looks a little different. It means that there is no absolute truth. So the question I want us to ask today is, how does a person know they found the truth? How do we know that we have the truth? How do we know we're not just the blind man saying, yep, we have the ear of the elephant and it's a little floppy. And it's kind of rough feeling. How do we know that? Is there any way a person can know their confession, Jesus is Lord, is credible? So it's a big question we're asking today. And if you're taking notes, get this. Get nothing else, get this. Since God's testimony is greater than man's, we must believe upon the Lord Jesus and so have life. Today's message is very simple. But it, but it really, to me, is the, the grounds underneath the confession that any person has. So I want us to ask two questions, and it's going to be broken up into two sections. The first question is, upon what is a person's confession founded? Upon what is a person's confession founded? And then the second part, I want us to look at how does a person arrive at such a conviction? So upon what is the person's confession founded, and how does a person arrive at such a conviction? So let's look at the first question. Upon what is a person's confession founded? And I want us to see the nature of the testimony. The nature of the testimony. He says in, in verse 6, and I'm reading out of the ESV today, so NKJV people, I'm really sorry. KJV people, I'm really sorry. I'm reading out of the ESV today. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who te- testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. This first section is seeking to give a validation for the reason we believe. The reason a person believes a certain truth is extremely vital. Skeptics have often criticized Christianity as being Christians. We're the ones, you know, you're the ones with blind faith. You just, you just believe something just because for no reason. We just believe, have no grounds to our faith. The dictionary definition of blind faith is belief without true understanding, perception, or discrimination. And I will assert to you today that Christians do not have blind faith. We fundamentally do not have blind faith. Here's why. And if you're taking notes, that first point, find God, find truth. It's not from me, that's from Augustine. Augustine said, when I find God, I know I've found him because I've found the truth. Because there are three witnesses. So upon what is a person's confession founded? And John's screaming remark is testimony. It's testimony that we find God when we find the truth and the truth is found in his testimony. And this is what he says. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. That's a very strange, it should be like a very, what, what do you mean, John? What do you mean by that? And I will say this whole passage today is at some level, he, he's speaking to them a very specific instance that we really don't have all the context to. But I would argue that he's speaking these three things. 
The first is the water. This is what he means by the water. And I would argue he's meaning the baptism. The baptism. We need to remember historically what John is he's, he's addressing here. He's addressing people who claimed that Jesus, the, the Christ, came on Jesus at his baptism and it left him at his crucifixion. That's not what we believe. And John is very clearly saying that's not true. So I would argue that the water here is in reference to Jesus' baptism and then all of his earthly life. Listen to Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see all three persons of the Trinity right there in action. The Father has sent the Son, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit comes and affirms it. And John is picking up this imagery of baptism, and he's saying that Jesus is the one who's come by the water. This wasn't some, when we say that Jesus was, he came and he was incarnate, we mean that he was fully God and fully man. He wasn't just God in the mirage of a human. He was fully God. He was truly God, truly man. He wasn't some superhuman. He was, he was God incarnate. So that's the, the water, baptism. Here's the second, the blood, which I think is referring to the crucifixion. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. So the blood, again, likely is referring to Jesus' death on the cross. And John is hammering home to these Gnostics. You say that the Christ came on Jesus and left Jesus. We're saying, no, no, no. The Christ was crucified. He's not some shadow of a man. He's fully God, fully man. Christ did not leave Jesus at his crucifixion. Rather, Christ is the one who died. Listen to them. It's hard to read this passage and not think of what we've read this morning in John 19. Listen to it. This is from the cross. John is reflecting. John, the same author, this is what he says. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. Even in referring to the cross scene, John is trying to show these believers the validity of their confession. This wasn't some ghost that was on the cross. They pierced his side, and water and blood came forth. But we shouldn't take this too far, because I, I, I think he's saying something beyond what he said in John 19. Listen to what he goes on to say. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And John is again hammering home. Here even the way he's saying it. He's saying he didn't just come by water. He wasn't just baptized. He was baptized and he was crucified. He was buried and he was raised. Christ truly did suffer. He truly did die in the flesh. And then listen to the third testimony. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So we see all three members working there together. We see the water, the baptism, and we see the crucifixion, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And the Spirit, where is he at in the middle of this? He's testifying the entire time. He's testifying first in Jesus' earthly ministry. John 1, 32, he says, I saw the Spirit descend on him from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
It's from John the Baptist. He says, He on whom the Spirit descended and remained, this is he who's baptized with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see the Spirit testified throughout the Old Testament in the fulfillment of Scripture. And then we also see even when Jesus breathing out the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. And then finally, a third way we see the Spirit is he confirms now within the hearts of believers that we really are children of God. So the Spirit is working in the middle of all of it. So when we ask the question, upon what is a person's confession founded? We need to scream out with the apostles the testimony of God. Our confession is founded upon testimony. It's not your testimony. It's not my testimony. It's not our church's testimony. It's ultimately God's testimony. Which is why when a leader fails in some gross, immoral way, we don't become ruined. When Ravi Zacharias, I don't know if you guys are familiar with what all happened there. I I was really bothered by that. There's a leader who failed in a very gross, immoral way. And I know a lot of people walked away from the faith because of it. But we don't become ruined because our faith ultimately is not a person's testimony. It's ultimately God's testimony that he has testified to and we receive. We don't become ruined in our faith because of it. Our confession is grounded upon the testimony of the spirit and the water and the blood. This also has implication too. When people reject Jesus, just so we're clear, and I've seen this happen too many times, when people reject Jesus in our life, we make it personal. We'll we'll tell them about Christ and they'll be like, I don't want anything to do with that. And we immediately are like, oh, they've rejected me. But they haven't rejected you. They've rejected God's testimony. And so if we realize that it's not our testimony, but it's God's testimony that we receive and share it changes everything. But I, if you're reading out of the NKJV, and I want us to turn now and ask a question. We, we should ask this question. I wasn't going to, but because it's lengthy, and some of you maybe were very interested. Some of you will probably fall asleep at this because it is kind of boring. But we have a textual question we need to get to. And what I mean by that is the question, who changed my Bible? That's what we should ask. If you noticed, what I read from this morning was the ESV. But if you read from the New King James, I'll just put it before you, for you who didn't read from it. The New King James says this in verse 7. So it's funny. We're talking about testimony, and, but at the same time, I'm sitting here talking about how the Bible's been changed. So I'm not saying that, but if you put the... Yeah, there it is. So, so this is what, in the New King James and in the King James, they, they follow a different tradition in the way they translate, and I want to just give it to you. So they say, they say, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So you can see there's a big difference. And if you, if you want to know in front of you, there's a, there should be a New King James in front of you. But the one I read from, most modern translations sound more like this. For there are three that, are, that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So there's a difference. And you probably are wondering, why? Why is there a difference? Who changed my Bible? Is this just because the liberals got a hold of the Bible and now, now, we're, now we have different Bibles? No, 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 no. The change here has nothing to do with Bible, modern translations. I want you to read, hear from John Stott. Don't just hear from me. This is what John Stott says. He says, the words that we saw that were different occur in no Greek manuscript before the 14th century. Okay, so I want you to think about this for a second. 
the words that we just read, the different words in the New King James and the KJV, do not occur prior to the 1300s. So you're talking about 1300s or 1200 years of church history that people didn't know these words. And he goes on and he says, except one 11th century and one 12th century manuscript in which have been added and in the margin by a much later hand. And in no quotation by the early Greek fathers, who, if they had known the text, would surely have quoted it in their Trinitarian debates. Let me just, I'll distill this quote down. It's a, it's a larger quote. Basically what he's saying is he's saying, this didn't occur, this text did not happen until the 1300s. Not only that, the early church fathers didn't even refer to it. They didn't even know about it. And secondly, it, was, it likely came from an early translation of the Bible. So you might ask, why does this matter? <laughs> okay, we're talking about the Bible's changed, it hasn't changed. But what has happened, likely, was a scribe, when they were writing or copying the scriptures, they didn't have the printing press, so they would copy, and oftentimes what they would do is they would make notes in the margin. And what likely happened is that, is that some scribe later said, oh, look, look at these notes in the margin. We should include them. That's basically what happened. And I bring this up for several reasons. One, we should be generous about the way we talk about Bible translations, always. Because translation is important, and we will discuss it, and we mustn't discuss it, but it ought to be something that is generous the way we talk about it. Secondly, here's the other thing I want to discuss about it. A scribe, at some point in history, thought, my thoughts about this text are really, really important. I've really come to some good thoughts on this text. I'm going to include them in my manuscript. And that might feel like a weird shift for you. Maybe it's like, I would never do that. But let me, let me give you an example of how we do this in our own culture. There's, there was a book a couple years ago, an example of the book called Jesus Calling. Maybe you know about it, maybe you don't know about it. If you don't know about it, just ignore them. Ignore what I'm saying. But there's a book called Jesus Calling, and basically the whole book is, is basically a love letter from Jesus to us. That's what the whole book was. And I want to le- read you just a quote from somebody, on, even on Amazon, that they gave it a review. Somebody very famous, this is what they said about it. Jesus Calling was so personal... It was the voice of Jesus talking to me, saying things that were true, and it was so therapeutic, so life-changing, and so helpful. I, will, I bring this up because I think we are... We, you might think, well, I would never add to my Bible. I would never be like, here I go. This is, word of, this is the word of God. But essentially, that's what someone did about 2,000 years ago, or however many years ago. 500 years ago, I guess it would be. So when we ask the question, upon what is a person's confession founded, we need to realize that nothing, nothing, no words from us, no words from other people, even if they're the best quote, the best true statement, and here's the thing about the New King James, it's true. What those words mean, they're true. They've stated true things, but they're not God's word. And we need to be very careful the way we make that distinction. That, every, that God's word's up here and everything else is down here. And I, and I know it's a, it's a minor point, but I, I just feel like we had to make that this morning. So, okay, let's... Now that long, very long aside that maybe you fell asleep through, let's go back and ask the question, upon what is a person's confession founded? So, I want you to see in this next section, the three are in the one. So listen to what he says in verse 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, 
the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So I said that since God's testimony is greater than man's, it's greater in this sense in significance. The testimony is not simply the water, it's Jesus, which is Jesus' baptism. It's not simply the blood, Jesus' death. It's not simply the spirit. It is all three working together. The word testify is used in this passage, these few short verses, ten times, pointing to the fact that this is some courtroom language and God is the one testifying. And John is picking up here likely the language from Deuteronomy 19 that says, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Unlike the witnesses at Jesus' trial who couldn't get their stories straight, Unlike the people in this world who can't agree to save their lives, God's testimony is one of great fidelity and importance, which is harmony in their confession. Now this phrase, and I would argue this is probably why the scribe did this, is he looked at this phrase of agree, and in the New King James they say the three, these three agree. You most literally could make it say, and these three are in the one. That's what it would be. It's a, and it's a phrase that just simply means they're agreeing in something. The phrase, are in the one, is likely what the scribe picked up on, Trinitarian language. And he thought, oh, this would be really nice if we, I see there's three in the one, the spirit, the water, the blood. The same is true of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But that's not, that's, that wasn't Scripture. And there's no disunity here. The point is, is that there's no disunity here. They are united in their claim, and their claim is Jesus is Lord. Listen to what their testimony is. He goes on and he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So how, we have to ask the question then, how is God's testimony greater than man's? Well, if you're taking notes, the, the, the next section is God's testimony is greater than man, which is greater credibility. So it's greater significance, it's greater credibility. And I want you to think with me for a second. How often do we trust man's testimony? We trust man's testimony when we buy a house. We trust man's testimony when we write a check. We test, we, we, I would even go as far to say we, test, we trust man's testimony every time we swipe our card. We trust man's testimony when we give other people money, when we accept jobs, when we are, trust our children to people to babysit. We entrust men all the time. You can't avoid it. And the logic of these verses is very simple. The logic is, if we can trust the testimony of two or three witnesses for men, how much more can we trust the testimony of God? God's witnesses are far greater and far more convincing than the witness of men. And this is the exact same logic Jesus picks up in John 5. In John 5, if you, in the text is up on the screen. You don't need to turn there. But if you want to, you can. John 5, uh, verses 31 to 40. Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders because he just healed a guy on the Sabbath. And that was a no-no. You didn't heal people on the Sabbath. You didn't do any work on the Sabbath. But he heals them. And then they start arguing. They're like, who is this guy? Where's this guy's testimony? Who are you to even be doing this? And this is what Jesus, is said, Jesus says. Well, he, he goes on and he actually first says that John testified about him. But then he basically dismisses John's testimony and says... But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
The bearing witness from John is small in significance for Jesus. Jesus is saying, yeah, John saw who I was, but he said, I'm not even going to cite that. He says, then he goes on and he says, Jesus, is, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Hear that, hear that word. Jesus is saying, you think, you think you know the scripture because you study it and you're very meticulous about it, but he's saying you miss it because you don't see me. And all of the Old Testament scripture, it points to see that I am the one who's come. The problem with these people is that they were seeking their own glory that comes from men. But they were rejecting the glory that comes from God. They were rejecting God's testimony. Jesus was doing works that they should have recognized, and they rejected them. So the question then is, the second question, the second part, is how does a person then arrive at such a conviction? Okay, we see the nature of the testimony. This is what our confession is based upon. But how does a person arrive at such a conviction? And I want us to see the result of the testimony. He says, whoever, in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And I want you to see that unbelief as accusation, unbelief as accusation, making God out as a liar. And all that a person has to do to accept the testimony of God is to believe on Jesus. To accept God's testimony is to accept the Lord Jesus. To not believe on the Lord Jesus is to make God out to be a liar. Listen to what Calvin says. I think this is so helpful. He says, some wonder why God commends faith so much. Why unbelief is so severely condemned. But the glory of God is involved in this. For since he designed to show a special instance of his truth in the gospel, all they who reject Christ there offered to them leave nothing to him. Therefore, though we may grant that a man in other parts of his life is like an angel, yet his holiness is diabolical as long as he rejects Christ. That's a long quote, and it's meaty and bulky. But what he's saying very simply is, if you reject the testimony of Christ you are calling God a liar. And you're saying, God, you are a liar. And that is blasphemous. Spurgeon, he had a really good quote, or an illustration he used. And he said that the person who rejects the testimony of God is like a person who goes to his doctor and says, doctor, like, give me some medicine. I need medicine. Will you you give me some medicine? I have this ailment. And the doctor says, yeah, sure, I'll give you the ailment. He says, but doctor, I can't believe until the evidence in myself, I see the evidence in myself. I need you to give me the, give me the medicine, but I don't want you to, I want to see the evidence that it's going to work. And the doctor responds and he says, he says, you won't be able to take my medicine on those terms because you cannot hide that evidence until you have taken it. Will you have it on, on my evidence that I have prescribed this dose in similar cases and know that I understand the anatomy of the body and that the drugs suit your disease and will remove it? No, doctor, you say. I must feel better before I can have confidence in you. The doctor would scoff at you at that moment, and he would say, if you don't take the medicine, you cannot receive, receive any benefit. So you reluctantly take the medicine, The next day, you begin to see the evidence in yourself. Now, the doctor, if you would have refused the medicine, would have said to you, you're a fool. 
How on earth can you see evidence of something that you don't take the medicine for? And the man who will not take God at his word, but wants something else besides the Lord's witness, not only insists God, but plays the part of an insane suicide and deserves to perish. That's what he says. The person who is not believed, which is which is a perfect representation of past action and abiding significance. The person who's not believed is the one who will perish. The abiding significance is the fact that God, that he makes God out to be a liar. Here's the thing, friends. Unbelief is no small mistake. Unbelief is not a struggle that we have. Unbelief is a sin to be hated unbelief is grotesque and should be regarded as such ultimately because what it does is it calls God a liar so what is being testified to look down in verse 11 and 12 and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son does not have life so these last the, the last two points are to know Jesus. Make sure we get this right. Oh, uh, go to the first one. Sorry. Yeah. To know Jesus. That's, to know Jesus is to know life. The testimony of God is that God has given to us life in his son. I want you to notice the three, three gifts that are seen in verses 11 and 12. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is not something we earn or deserve. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we receive. or It's not something we, we do anything for. It's something to be received with open hands of faith. Here's the second thing, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us, his, us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Secondly, I want you to see that the life or the gift is found only in the son. Jesus says in another place that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Eternal life is found in the Son. And then the third thing, here's what I want you to see, is no Jesus, no life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The third thing I want you to see is this gift has a present possession. It's something we presently have. And the eternal life, the life which flows from the very fountain of God, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who believes in the Lord Jesus is the one who has life. And apart from faith in the Son of God, there is no life. So what is the reason? Let's close with this. What is the reason John has told us all this? We've talked about this before, but John has given several reasons, several purposes in his letter. And we get to one of the last purposes. Verse 13, look at it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's testimony for a purpose. It's testimony for a purpose. God's testimony is doing something within us. And notice who it's for, too, in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This isn't for the person just on the street. This book is not even for the person who's on the street. It's for the person who believes in the name of the Son of God. That you may know you have eternal life. 
He's clearly writing to those who have believed, and he's clearly saying that, the, that what's being extended to us is the hope, is the trust, is the assurance that we may know we have eternal life. It's that we may know that we will be saved one day. Since God's testimony is greater than man, we must believe upon the Lord Jesus and so have life. So the next couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to finish out the book of 1 John. And the last couple of weeks, I feel like, have been pretty repetitive. It's been pretty uh, kind of beating the same drum, like repentance and faith, trust Christ. But he's going to end on really, I would argue, he's going to end on a pinnacle moment. So the next couple of weeks, that's where we're going to kind of end. Um, and with that, how about I pray for us, and then I'm going to move us into a time of response. Or actually, how about we have a time of response and then we pray. So take just a minute and anything that's maybe grieving you in the Lord this morning, work, work through that with him this morning and then uh, I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you that you have given us life in your name. Lord Jesus, that you have secured life in your name. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you apply the life in your name. that we'd be ones who walk by faith. God, for this is our prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.